Hello and welcome to Oats for Breakfast. Oats for Breakfast is affiliated with the Socialist Project, an eco-socialist organization based in Toronto. My name is Sadia. And I'm Steve. Today we're joined by Eric Blank, who was once a high school teacher in California. He recently wrote a book titled Red State Revolt, The Teacher's Strike, Wave, and Working Class Politics. Thanks for taking the time to come on the show, Eric. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I wonder if we could begin, Eric, by asking you to talk a bit about yourself and how is it that you came to write this great book? Yeah, I had been a teacher in the Bay Area for uh, a long while, and I've been a socialist and a public education organizer for a long time. And so when the strike wave popped off uh, in West Virginia, I basically asked Bhaskar uh, Sankara, who's the editor of Jacobin, if he would let me go cover it, even though I had zero journalistic credentials, and he was uh, nice enough and crazy enough to give me the assignment. And uh, ever since, I've been traveling around covering uh, on the ground basically every one of the big strikes that's happened, not just in the red states, but more recently in places like Oakland and Los Angeles. So it's been a very exciting uh, movement to witness and to try to write about and to help organize national solidarity for as a member of DSA and um, just the left more generally. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what you think the political significance of the strikes has been and you know how they relate to the political work in the DSA? Yeah, the the big story is that the strike is back on the table for working people in the United States for the first time in four decades. So that's amazing. And in itself, the stakes of that are quite high because one of the main reasons we've been losing for so long is that the union movement has been in retreat uh, to a significant extent because it's relied on... Um, lobbying the Democratic Party rather than building up its own independent power through things like strikes or independent politics. And the strike wave then is the first time in a very long time, really in generations, where you get the sense that there could be a revived labor movement as a whole. Um, And then that in turn poses the question of how that's going to relate to and how it already has related to the reemergence of a socialist movement. And these two phenomena are interrelated in a very... uh, important way, because in some ways, both of them are rooted in the crisis of mainstream politics in the United States and the um, discrediting of the Democratic Party uh, elite and the Republican Party as well. And that led to things like the Bernie Sanders campaign, the growth of DSA. And in fact, some of the key organizers that initiated these strikes, particularly in West Virginia and Arizona, uh, were socialists, young socialist DSA members who did study groups on books like Jane McAlevey's No Shortcuts and really tried to use the history of socialist organizing and labor organizing to uh, propel the movement forward and to move towards strikes. So you already see the role that socialists have been able to play in these strikes despite their very small numbers. And the exciting thing is now that the DSA is much bigger, we have the ability to have this uh, reciprocal politics where the growth of the labor movement in turn creates new possibilities for a socialist movement that isn't only numerically large, but that is actually rooted uh, amongst a significant layer of the class, which to a certain extent is a task that remains to be done and isn't really yet accomplished. I wonder if you can speak a little bit about um, the conditions of teachers and the public school systems in uh, West Virginia, Oklahoma, and Arizona, because I think, you know, teachers here 
uh, are um, considered largely a middle-class profession. And although things are quite bad under Doug Ford, uh, it's nowhere near the kind of harrowing stuff that you describe in your book. Um, I'm going to read a passage, um, an Oklahoma teacher named Mickey Miller's experience. And I quote, During the day, Miller teaches at Booker T. Washington High School in Tulsa. After the school day is over, he works until 7.30 at the airport, loading and unloading bags from Delta Airlines. From there, he goes on to his third job, coaching kids at the Tulsa Soccer Club. Quote, I have a master's degree and I have to work three jobs just to make ends meet, he explained in April. It's very difficult to live this way. End quote. Um, your comments, Sarah. Yeah, the answer to that is um, tricky because in some ways, relative to other workers in the United States, teachers remain at the top of the working class, really. This is still, you know, a job in which your average pay, as low as it is, is significantly higher than uh, average number of work, average pay for other workers in the state. So it's not the case, as it's been sort of framed, like in the media, that there's just a question of, like, absolute deprivation, that there's just a certain um, level beyond which workers start rising up. Because if that were the case, you'd be seeing strikes all across the board, um, and so that's not the case. The The reality is that there's a huge gap specifically within education right now between the expectations of teachers and the realities of what the education system has become after decades, really, of neoliberalism and in particular since the 2008 economic crisis and the policies of privatization uh, and austerity that the Democrats just as much in some ways even more than the Republicans have imposed. So the expectation that teachers have had that they can do a decent job teaching has been undercut uh, by all of these um, policies. And that's part of the reason why you see so many strikes. Um, so it's not just that there's these conditions are bad, but that uh, teachers feel like they deserve more. And that's a good thing. And it's that gap that has led to this resistance. I, I want to... Um so ask something from a slightly different angle. Um, you know, when I was coming of age politically, the radical politics was all about the anti-globalization movement. And one of the biggest kind of fault lines in the anti-globalization struggle, which is, you know, completely decentralized, mostly unorganized, uh, kind of anarcho-horizontalism, um, was between what were then regarded as people's movements and big labor, as it was called. And big labor, i.e. the labor unions, were regarded as kind of having turned their back on popular movements and progressive politics and were actually kind of hopeless and written off as a vehicle for any kind of progressive struggle. So I want to just maybe tease out a little bit, first of all, why you think that's changed, if it's changed, um, how we can keep changing it, and also if there has been any kind of arguments, discussions politically um, within the DSA over different orientations to the labor movement based on these legacies. Yeah, that's a big question. The reality is that for a long time in the United States, it, it just definitely predates the anti-globalization movement. The common sense is that labor movements are at best just another um, good group that you should have in a coalition amongst many different groups. Uh, and at worst, uh, maybe they're actually a big part of the problem. So, so that's the common sense. And the case that Marxists have made that something is special about the organized working class and that there's a specific level of potential leverage and power amongst organized workers just hasn't had enough like empirical validation on the ground to gain that much traction. So one of the things that has been hard then by making the case for 
you know, why, why the labor movement should be central is that we haven't had that many things to point to. That began to change a little bit after um, really the Chicago teacher strike in 2012, which in some ways was the precursor to the current um, teacher strike wave. And that galvanized teachers and it, it made it clear that you know, actually socialists who played a very important role in that strike could have an impact well beyond their numbers if they oriented to basically working within unions, uh, but not just as sort of staffers, but, you know, building a caucus to take over the union and systematically organize that union on a different basis towards building working class power. And that combined with just to be honest, the impasse of all of the other political strategies that have been attempted has led to the current situation in which for the first time in a very long time, we're able to make a credible case that is increasingly gaining traction that in fact, the strategic um, horizon for the left has to be to end this forced divorce between socialism and organized labor, which has really prevailed since the Red Scare in the 1950s, that the cutting edge issue, if we're going to win and not just make ourselves feel good by taking good positions on things, is to reconnect the socialist movement to the labor movement. And that doesn't mean just organizing at workplaces. It doesn't mean doing all of your work in the unions, um, but it's basically to see that both the workplace and the union as the critical point of uh, leverage and lever through which we can do things like building work, uh, like labor community partnerships in which we can do things like fight oppression effectively. Um, and that in the absence of that orientation, all of the community work we're doing, all of the social movement work we're doing, and which should continue, is just not going to have the social weight necessary to win. So because of the teacher strikes now within DSA, I think that there is a real vigorous debate about the relative centrality of the working class and its unions. Um, and the way that debate goes will have a big impact, not just for DSA, but for, I think, the labor movement. And it's not a foregone conclusion because there's still a very widespread sense amongst activists, despite, you know, despite the impasse of the anti-globalization movement, there's still kind of a, what I would consider a, like a movement of movements strategy in which basically it's seen as somehow hierarchical or oppressive to prioritize um, types of struggles. It's seen as somehow ignoring uh, the interests of the most marginalized to do something like focusing on labor. And the case we're making is like, in fact, it's the contrary that if we're going to be able to um, create vehicles that are able to actually promote the interests of uh, working class communities of color in particular, it's very hard to do that in the absence of a revived labor movement. So that debate is continuing, and the way it plays out, I think, will be in part based off of the continued development of the strike wave, because as long as this is going on, we just have proof that this can work. Um, but it's also going to depend on the sort of intra-DSA um, debates that you know I think it's important for um, Marxists to weigh in on. And where, does, where do public sector workers fit into... Uh, and this broader sort of wave of um, labor struggles, and in particular, how might you know public educators be particularly well placed in building up labor, and not just organized labor itself, but how it connects to the broader unorganized working class and communities around them? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, teachers unions are the most powerful labor unions in the United States at this point, they're the most, uh, in the sense that they're the most organized and they're clearly at the fore of this uh, strike 
uh, wave. And that's not uh, the case in other sectors yet. It's not the case in other parts of the public sector, and it's definitely not the case in the private sector. Although we have seen an uptick um, in labor actions in healthcare, of which some is public, and uh, as well as hotels. So the centrality then of teachers, but public sector workers generally, towards rebuilding a working class movement as a whole, follows along a few different lines. One is just being an inspiration for other working people, because if you see teachers win, then, you know, if you look at the way the federal government shutdown ended, this is pretty significant, that it was not ended because the Democrats did anything, but it was in fact because air traffic controllers called in sick and because the flight attendants union, which is a private sector union, uh, threatened to strike the very next day. And when Sarah Nelson, who's the president of the flight attendants union, was interviewed to say, how did you, even by the mainstream press, how did you come up with this idea of a strike to end the shutdown? And she says, well, look, if the teachers are doing it, why can't we? So that's just one aspect of the inspira- like the inspiring example spreading. But I think the maybe the most important um, lever that educators and public sector workers potentially as a whole could do is that by fighting for better conditions for um, better public services as a whole, they're able to be the lever the lever through which you could have a broad coalition of working class people, not just uh, those who are directly uh, working at a given institution, but generally speaking for things like uh, taxing the rich to pay for better schools, to um, start reincorporating key services into the public sector. So for instance, if you think about what's at stake, if you're able to reverse the decimation of public schools and make the case clear through practice that you know, the public sector is actually better than the private sector in, in its ability to provide quality services, but that in order for that to happen, you need uh, good funding, amongst other things, uh, and you need strong unions so that working people can have some sort of say over what these public uh, services look like and how they're provided. If you're able to do that, think about the stakes for that for things like how you combat climate change. Because if we're ever going to win a Green New Deal, it's going to be contingent, again, on being able to win working class people as a whole to an understanding that actually you need to move towards the public provision of key um, services and not the private sector. So I think that that is the immediate uh, implication is that working people as a whole could benefit from a robust coalition to basically take on the billionaires. And that starts by defending and expanding current public services. Yeah, and that then points to the kind of necessity for politics, because if you have, you know, if you win a strike and then a right-wing government responds by closing down half the schools because they cost too much, you know, through an austerity program, then then nothing's left behind. So it also depends on building something that's like a political movement that can then push forward a political agenda through the state that, you know, would support those kinds of struggles. Which brings me to the kind of the slightly uh, different point. Um, you recently wrote an article for Jacobin, which I thought was brilliant about uh, about the importance of Kotsky's work in, in the current moment. And one of the, I think, key parts of this debate that's going on in the North American left around the question of the state is about whether it can be transformed. And I, I wonder, given, you know, Saadi's questions about the public sector, that means that these workers are basically part of the state, right? And so part, part of what's at stake in these struggles is what the state is, how it relates to communities, how the people who actually whose work comprises 
the state in these different communities relate to their work, um, all, all these questions together. And so basically, you know, there's, there's, there's a, a basic matter of um, the nature of the state's embeddedness in communities and its democratic responsiveness, it's the degree to which it's organically embedded in those communities, and those communities have a say over what those services look like, receive quality services. Um, or are these people, like teachers, for example, in this case, just doing a job and, and they're doing it in this kind of rigid, hierarchical, bureaucratic way where somebody decided this is how it should be and so that's how it is. So I wonder if there's a connection in your mind between um, your ideas about the capitalist state today and the nature of the public sector struggles that the teachers are engaging in, uh, in terms of their relation to communities and, and so on. Yeah, I think just starting with the first point you make, it's absolutely critical to underline that strikes aren't enough, that you know, you can and have to revive the strike if we're going to have a significant labor movement. But the reality is, even if you look at the experience we've seen since West Virginia, is strikes on their own have uh, a difficult time systematically changing the priorities of the state governments, let alone national governments, uh, which are necessary to create the type of structural reforms that could actually resolve um, the depth of the crisis in public education or services. So you have to be able to combine the uh, strikes with some sort of political movement. And that could take different forms. Part of that is doing things like statewide uh, referendum and initiatives to tax the rich. So in California, uh, the Los Angeles Teachers Union, uh, to its credit, has pivoted after their very successful strike towards building a statewide movement uh, to basically reverse the tax system in California, which is so anti-working class ever since Prop 13. And that is an aspect of it. But so can you just say what that is? Then? Yeah, sorry. So uh, in, in in the tax revolt in the 1970s, which really began in California through uh, this thing called Prop 13, which um, made it almost impossible to raise property taxes on corporations. And so our public sector has been decimated ever since. And uh, the fact that now, because of these strikes, you have unions uh, being able to make a case that now is the time to reverse really what became a pillar of neoliberalism in the United States. So there's the significance of using the momentum of the strikes to pivot in a political direction. But I think ultimately, um, to be real, uh, even something like uh, these uh, initiatives is not enough because if you still have the state itself being run by corporate politicians, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, then all of the gains you make or can impose are going to be uh, a weaker than you would have had if you had had actual working class party um, or politicians in power. And even if you win, they're very quickly could get reversed. So if we're talking about fully funded public education, if we're talking about expanding the public sector to um, Medicare for all, for instance, and things like that. You can't do that just with social movements and just with unions on their own. You need to have a political project. And that raises the question, I think, you know, most immediately before talking about the transition of socialism, would be the, raising the question of Bernie Sanders and the absolute centrality of the Bernie Sanders campaign, both in 2016 for helping initiate sort of this uh, new socialist movement and particularly now in 2020, and now we have a significant socialist movement, how do we relate to elections um, in order to rebuild a socialist movement that is rooted in the working class? And for the most part, just to be honest, I don't think that's the case currently. We have, I think the class composition, to be honest, as far as personal background of DSAers, most people probably do come from, broadly speaking, working class backgrounds. But uh, the level of organic relationship to working class institutions or communities is very weak at best. So 
that raises the possibility of using the Bernie Sanders campaign to really go out and talk about class politics and socialism with millions of people. And so it's in that context that there's a very big debate about the state and the you know, fault lines to a certain extent are Marxists trying to overcome a widespread sense on the left, both of kind of various iterations of what you were talking about before, you know, semi-anarchist inclinations to uh, ignore the state. And then even, to be honest, within traditions of Marxism and traditions of people who consider themselves revolutionary socialists, also uh, at best very systematically downplay the importance of electoral politics, that somehow this is, um, it's not our terrain, it's less important than uh, the mass action from below, you know, and so the stake then of talking about what the uh, tradition, you know, going back to Karol Kautsky and thinking about, you know, democratic socialism as a strategy, part of which means that the idea is if you're going to get to a rupture with the uh, capitalist system, you're going to have to do that in part, not just through mass movements, although it's necessary, but through being able to uh, build a majoritarian coalition that can use the democratic openings and contradictions of the existing capitalist state, but leaning on the most democratic institutions that we have there, things like parliament or the ability to elect someone like Bernie Sanders, and using that contradiction then between this democratic opening and the what are, to be honest, very anti-democratic structural um, dynamics within the state and capitalism generally. And there's this contradiction then between the democratic form of the current state and its generally capitalist content. And so if we are going to ever get to socialism, it's going to require using the electoral arena to um, be able to win a majority to electing a workers' party to the state. But I think in the short term, the stakes of this you know, admittedly more distant horizon has primarily to do with the relative weight we give to electoral politics or not. Because if you have this conception that really the real politics of socialism just is in the workplace or community and electoral politics is like really at best a social democratic diversion, then I think you're going to miss what is really the most opportune moment for rebuilding socialist politics in generations. And so I see that um, as the immediate implication of what sometimes can seem like a more theoretical debate. I think one of the things you mentioned in the book um, is that there seems to be an interesting contrast. On the one hand, the left, while you know, being hesitant to talk to work with unions, is also hesitant to engage in electoral politics. Um, and the unions, on the other hand, union leadership, is primarily oriented towards electoralism uh, and lobbying, uh, and then less so towards working with the left and actually building something on the ground, with, either with their members or with the communities around them. And so how do we try, or what instances have you seen where there's a, a successful attempt um, where you see labor unions and the rank and file mobilized, connecting to working class communities um, and being able to pursue electoral politics while still sort of uh, doing the mass work and being able to hold those things together. Yeah. In, in the most general sense, you can look at the relationship between the Bernie Sanders campaign and these strikes and this back and forth dynamic as an example of that. So Bernie Sanders inspires the rebirth of a socialist movement, which in turn intervenes in uh, education leading towards mass strikes that now in turn creates a whole uh, layer of educators who have confidence, a level of sort of nascent class consciousness, and a willingness to fight back, 
which in turn is very much uh, helping the Bernie Sanders campaign now uh, have a base. And Bernie is, uh, to his credit, has raised the education platform uh, as central. And so you see this reciprocal effect. But I think when it comes to a specific organization that um, has manifest this strategy most effectively, I wish I could say is DSA, but I don't think that's the case yet, partly because we don't have the power um, implantation necessary, but you can look at some examples of um, where the where DSAers have embedded themselves in unions and where these unions have sort of pushed in the direction that you mentioned. And the best example is Chicago, where the 2012 teacher strike really galvanized the city. It under the leadership of a rank and file caucus that took over the union and in which socialists played a central role and continued to play a central role. Uh, they were able to reshape politics in Chicago. The The strike uh, won important gains, but it was not enough. Uh, there was, to be honest, some of the gains of the strike were very immediately uh, or very quickly reversed in the wake of the strike. And, and part of the lesson that the uh, unionists, including socialists, learned is that you can't ignore the state because the state doesn't ignore you. And I think ever since there's been a orientation of the CTU, the Chicago Teachers Union, to try to uh, build working class power on an electoral uh, arena in Chicago. And to be honest, I think that some uh, some of that has not been as uh, independent as maybe some of us would have liked. There was, in the recent um, mayoral election, for instance, CTU endorsed really kind of more of a mainstream Democrat, and that was quite controversial. But uh, if we leave that aside, the, the nevertheless, the main thrust of CTU on an electoral front has been to build um, kind of a front called Working Families Party that has been central towards rebuilding uh, working class politics in, in the city. And in fact, the recent election, which some of your listeners might have heard of, of six socialists, uh, six DSA members to city council aldermen in Chicago, there's no way that would have happened without the resources of the Chicago Teachers Union. And this is every account on the ground. It's like, if it hadn't been for the Chicago Teachers Union, there's no way that we'd have now what is the most significant socialist present within you know, the state on, on a local level in the country. And so you do see how strikes can lead to revitalization of the union, which in turn can intervene in a political way, which in turn, particularly then when the s- socialists have uh, an orientation towards mass politics and there was DSA members who are involved in the union and who also were just involved in building these electoral campaigns independently. All of these things can come together in a very potentially powerful way. And so you could see that the model of Chicago in that sense could be replicated where by leaning on the power of the teachers union, you could have uh, so have the leverage to be able to really win uh, across the board and across, you know, really the United States. And you mentioned um, the importance of the Sanders campaign, and I, I definitely agree that the significance of that is major. And there's different ways in which it's major. I mean, there's there's the education that he can do and the kind of confidence boosting of the working class that he can do. You know, if the, the presidential candidate or, dare we say, the president himself is on the picket line with workers, that makes a huge difference about, you know, their level of consciousness and how the public interprets their struggles and so on. Another question, though, is what you do with the power when you have it. And so one question I have is going beyond just the question of um, educating people and building confidence of the working class. What, what concretely, and this is also going back to the question of transforming the state. So from the point of view of today's, you know, budding socialist movement, what would a democratic education system look like? 
if 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 you were you know President Sanders, and let's just for a minute gloss over the fact that the Democratic Party is the Democratic Party, completely neoliberal for the most part, and doesn't support anything that he wants to do. Um, what would a program for a democratic, edu- you know, worker-led, teacher-led education system in the United States look like? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think part of the part of the democratic socialist tradition that I identify with and that um, you mentioned is is also seeing the need to combine interventions within the state with um, mass action from the outside. So the first thing I would say is before we talk about, you know, what sort of transformations uh, you could see in education that something like Bernie Sanders could bring about, it just should be stated from the out- offset that in order for that to happen, you would need a significantly stronger uh, and more disruptive labor movement that could force uh, the type of changes upon the state as a whole. So it's not something that when we talk about what this transformation would look like, it's not something that really Bernie could do on his own. And I think to his credit, um, he's conscious of that and has actually explicitly argued that. And it's not just rhetorical. And he's, you know, the slogan of the campaign this time is uh, not me, us. And over and over again, that's been manifest in the way that um, he's organized the campaign and that we've oriented towards it, which is using the um, like electoral lists that he's built up to literally just tell people to go walk the picket line, you know, and to support strikes over and over again. But so that same dynamic is going to have to happen under, you know, our imagined Bernie presidency in which you're going to need this type of kind of bottom up uh, organizing because just the structural constraints of the existing state are such that without that, it's very hard to imagine getting to, uh, you know, the type of public education system we need. But I think, as you mentioned before, education is a really good example for the um, case for democratic socialism, because, you know, public education is part of the state and um, public education workers are state workers. So it's in some ways the easiest uh, comparatively uh, institution to think about transforming. One could imagine that the difficulties you'd have in creating a robust uh, and democratic institution in favor of working class people in the military, for instance, would be much more difficult. <laughs> or the CIA. <laughs> right. So, so, you know, so it's hard. You don't want to overgeneralize. But particularly within education, even short of breaking from capitalism, you could imagine um, a couple different things. One is you'd have to systematically um, reverse the um, financial and economic priorities of the current tax system. And you'd really have to go after big business and you have to go after the rich uh, to be able to have the funding necessary. So the funding, I think, is actually a precondition for a lot of the type of transformations we'd want because the starting point for being able to uh, create a more uh, just and more uh, fair and more useful public education system would be doing things like dramatically lowering class size, hiring way more teachers, counselors, nurses, being able to bring back the arts, you know, because in, I, I don't know what it's like in Canada, to be honest, but in the United States, the first thing to get chopped are the arts programs. And so the, the, the making education much more than what it is currently, which is um, at its worst, really a just semi-authoritarian regime to teach students how to take tests. And that's one of the reasons why you have a lot of teacher burnout is that teachers sort of object to not being able to actually teach uh, critical thinking. And so you would need to be able to have this economic uh, underpinning to the transformation of schools. But you could also um, think about democratizing the school system and democratizing schools in a way that 
to be honest, even people who aren't democratic socialists are already talking about in Los Angeles, for instance, the demand of the teachers union um, has been for what they call community schools, which are um, public schools that are fully funded and which provide wraparound services for the community as a whole. So the school itself would be almost like the local um, instantiation of the democratic state that we would want in which it's able to provide not only uh, better school services, but really um, a vast a variety of public services for um, students and teachers in the community as a whole, whether it's like immigration help or just being able to have somewhere you could go and, you know, after school to be able to have um, a public sphere, right? And part of that is also then giving teachers and students and parents democratic input on what the schools should look like, you know, what should the priorities be? Um, what should the curriculum be? Th- you know, things like that, that right now are just off the table. And so I do think you could look at the school system and the types of transformations as the um, kind of cutting edge for what we'd like to do with the state as a whole, which is to both um, massively give it the funds necessary so that it can be more than just an austerity regime, and then B, begin democratizing it. And that's not always so easy. And I think that one of the tensions we'll see, and I don't know how to resolve this ahead of time, is that particularly if you're still under capitalism, but even potentially under a socialist system, the democratizing uh, aspects of the strike in which you get people's input, there can be a tension there between also the necessity to remain independent of that state. So the tension, for instance, of bringing teachers unions into the governance of a school, while then at the same time being able to represent their interests is not an easy thing to resolve. And I think it's going to be precisely that tension that you're going to have to over and over again grapple with but there's no way around that in the same way there's no way around um, dealing with the contradictions of how much you do um, politics within the state how much do you do um, you know extra parliamentary action it'd be nice to think there's a formula for that or there's some somewhere like quick fix that just if only you stick with this one thing then you know you're not going to get you're not going to sell out because the reality is you can do that, but you also might just lead yourself to marginalization or ineffectiveness. This is a, you know, there's no, unfortunately, there's no uh, guidebook for this. And we're just going to have to sort of see as we go on the basis of what we know. But there's no, you know, there's no roadmap. Yeah, I think, you know, just to add to your vision, Eric, um, I think we've been having some of these conversations with George Martel, um, who's an education activist in the city before he passed away. And one of his key interventions was that uh, in addition to, you know, drastically changing the structures and the broader conditions that act upon how education is done, um, that even the very nature of how we think about what is it to educate, what sort of ethics should guide it, what are we trying to do in terms of reproducing the minds of young people? Um, that the, those sort of concerns, as well as how those get actually sort of operationalized in practice in terms of how teachers think of themselves, would, be, would have to be just as much part of the transformation. And so I think a visioning of the public education system in, in the full way that you're doing it could be, you know, one of the ways to keep the momentum of something like a strike wave going, that you're not just pushing back and having a defensive struggle and not just an offensive struggle in terms of asking for more funding, but able to put forward a fuller and fuller version to bring, you know, teachers and parents and students on board to have at least this kind of sector of the state be preemptively transformed into something that actually meets human needs. Um, 
But what I was going to ask was that in terms of when we think about building working class solidarity for a broader political project, the way that the left often here has thought about the working class in the states, uh, in particular the white working class and and their uh, support for Trump um, and therefore being written off as... um, as huge swaths of you know the populations there and in, in Canada as well that are you know doomed to be the ones who are going to get in the way of such a project and they'll have to be kept uh, aside instead of incorporated. And in your book, you illustrate why that's a really offensive take and why you know in West Virginia, Arizona, Oklahoma, it's been largely the white working class that's been at the center of uh, mobilizing for a better public education system, for for a better public sector. And so, you know, what are some of the ways that you've seen organizers and the teachers' unions have pushed back against against these sort of formulations, but are able to build that kind of solidarity so that insofar as there's a right, insofar as there's like Republicans and uh, far right mobilizing, that they're not able to pull away the working class uh, and their grievances in an op- oppositional direction. Yeah, that's a good question. The The reality is very different on the ground than the way it's described in the sort of dominant red state, blue state paradigm and all of the sort of mainstream hot takes after Trump was elected, blaming it on the working class, even though in every single state, the majority of workers, white workers included, either voted Democrat or abstained. You know, this is the overwhelming majority in every single one of the states. The reality is, yeah, many white workers did vote for Trump. Um, in, and many of these workers just went on strike against the Republicans uh, to fight for better schools, not just for themselves, but for their students, of whom, uh, you know, which were overwhelmingly, in many states, uh, students of color. Uh, in a place like Arizona, the teachers are overwhelmingly white. Students are predominantly um, Latino and other non-white students. And nevertheless, these teachers who, if you listen to the you know mainstream media, are uh, probably intractable racists, in fact, went on strike and put at the fore demands on behalf of communities of color, you know, and, and better funding for their students. So I do think that this idea of the, um, the depth of, like, ideological racism is uh, overblown and the depth of the threat posed by the far right is overblown. The main attacks that we've seen on immigrants and on marginalized communities uh, to be real have come from the state and uh, both the Democrats and obviously the Republicans are way worse. I don't think we should like underestimate the uh, gravity of having someone like Trump in office and, you know, and, and it's certainly emboldened the far right. But look, the reality was in West Virginia, in Oklahoma and Arizona, when these strikes popped off, the far right uh, became almost non-issue. Uh, they, you know, I asked, I, I asked people, I was like, oh, what happened to these, you know, uh, to these groups? Did they try to show up? In Arizona, uh, five people came and they, they were literally drowned out because you had hundreds of teachers. At first, didn't even know who these people were. But then when it became clear that they were hecklers, you had literally hundreds of teachers just surround them chanting red for ed, red for ed, and they just didn't come back. So the um, the reality was that the working class was able to cohere around an alternative political perspective when it was provided. And the big problem you have is that, for the most part, an alternative political perspective between, on the one hand, the uh, Democrats who combined uh, anti-working class austerity with social liberalism, and then the Republicans who 
and do that. Well, they, they, they combine uh, austerity politics, anti-working class politics with reactionary uh, <laughs> positions, you know. And so, but it's sort of lose-lose and you can understand why some people either just check out of the system as a whole or, you know, to be honest, when their jobs were cut by Democrats in these states, you know, you could see why some people might think that Trump is going to do something different. And so it's not the case that uh, there is this uh, monolithic racist white working class. Uh, I just don't think that that's the reality. And the the fact that in West Virginia, for instance, uh, Trump won every single county also is brought up all the time. And, you know, they're saying, how could you have a strike wave in a place where Trump won every single county? Well, Bernie Sanders won every single county in West Virginia as well. And that's significant. And then in response to your particular question about, you know, how did the, um, you know, what did the unions do or the organizers do? Part of that is they were able to give voice to what already exists, which is a progressive uh, sentiment across the board, really, amongst working class people in all of the states. If you just look at poll after poll, um, even before these strikes, even before Bernie, the overwhelming majority of people in all states think that the rich aren't paying their fair share, that you need better schools, that you need you know, universal health care. And even on issues that you might think would be more controversial, like immigrant rights, overwhelming support for giving rights to immigrants and opposition to racism in a general sense. You know, it's not to say that everybody is where we might want them to be at, but it's not like we have to recreate uh, from scratch uh, a popular consciousness in favor of our demands. The thing we need to be able to do is put forward a path that can win them because people feel powerless. And so what the strikes did is they were able to show that there's a way to win against uh, these elites that exist. And the reality was then tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who you might not otherwise have expected seized that moment and came out in full force to fight against the Republican Party. And so I think the big lesson there is that if you have confidence in working class people, which I think a lot of the left uh, lacks, actually, and they have a somewhat condescending um, assumption about the cognitive abilities of working class people. But if, 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 if you actually think that um, the problem is less that people are brainwashed or, or somehow just so deeply ideologically confused by the powers that be, but the main issue isn't that, but rather just people's sense of powerlessness, then the politics that you're going to put forward is less about um, just this um, ideological case for what we stand for and hope that people eventually got on board and more about fighting around very particular demands that people support and building up mass organizing and struggles that can win. And that in turn will lead people uh, closer to our politics, um, even if at first their involvement, uh, even if first they're not ideologically on board. Thanks. And I think we just have one more question. Um, and, you know, you've talked a lot over the course of our really fascinating conversation about the need for um, a political struggle. And you've even mentioned the need for a workers party. And, you know, obviously, the Democratic Party being porous as it is and allowing through the primary system, somebody like Bernie Sanders to become the Democratic nominee potentially for president, you know, the Democratic Party, as a result of that porosity, does offer a certain opening or a certain vehicle through which progressive struggles can be built to a certain extent, but it also poses barriers um, over the long run and even over the short run. So I was curious if you could talk a little bit about, as you have in, in your writings elsewhere, how to relate to the Democratic Party in both the short and the long term, and particularly this idea that's often discussed on the American left now of the dirty break with the Democratic Party and what that might mean. Yeah, you know, the historic position of the left in the United States um, was that there's two parties of the bosses and we need one of our own. And that tactically what that meant 
was you shouldn't ever support a Democrat. And to be honest, in most countries of the world, that probably makes sense. I think that is, uh, on the whole, the right take, um, because so much of what we try to do is draw class lines um, and make it clear that really the cutting-edge issue on everything is whether you're on the side of the working class or the capitalist class, and elections are a very important time to do that. And so the position that we're forced into in the United States is quite difficult, which is that because of the um, anti-democratic nature of the political system, and then also the relative openness of the Democratic Party, um, every attempt uh, really to build a workers' party on what the model has been elsewhere has not gained the type of traction that we'd like it to have uh, gained. Um, And so one of the lessons that we've seen over really the last few years is that it is possible to intervene um, within... I would say I wouldn't even call it necessarily intervening within the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party isn't a type of like membership party that you could really intervene in. It's a ballot line um, that is really organized by the state. And the actual organization of the Democratic Party is totally secondary to uh, both, on the one hand, the state structure and the ballot, which has these primaries that you vote for. And then on the other hand, the funding um, apparatus, which is central and which is the main mechanism through which the capitalist class is able to um, make sure that the Democratic Party as a whole and its politicians upholds the interests of capital as opposed to labor. So the ability for us to intervene is primarily about using the um, ballot line, which is to say that socialists or you know maybe working class pol- um, political candidates generally can run on the Democratic Party ballot line, but on a political basis and in connection with organizations that are directly antagonistic, not just to capital, but really the policies of the Democratic Party as a whole. And it's a very contradictory situation. And to be honest, it's not so easy because the Democratic Party does try to impose discipline they do try to muddy the waters and they make it so that if you're going to run, uh, they call upon Bernie or um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to also do things like support the whoever the mainstream candidate of the Democratic Party is. And this tends to muddy the class lines in a way that is unhelpful and it poses one of the reasons why you need your own party so that our candidates aren't constrained by this incessant pressure to... Uh, be part of anybody but the Republicans. And so the danger, on the one hand, of using the Democratic Party ballot line is that in most times throughout US, U.S. history, where that's been attempted, the result has been to have the left um, really dissolved and co-opted back into the Democratic Party mainstream through this argument and the in- institutional and financial pressures of, well, we need to unite against the Republicans, right? And so if you're actually going to be a Democrat, then you need if when you lose the primary, or uh, more generally, you need to line up with the party as a whole, which means, in fact, lining up with a wing of capital, um, or at least the political representatives who are linked to a wing of capital. Um, and that, as socialists, is very dangerous. That being said, we have no other option, uh, because the space for um, thinking that you're going to build a third party just through running independent candidates is relatively thin. I do think that on a local level, you can, uh, and there have been some instances like Kashana Sawant in Seattle, for instance, of being able to run as an independent socialist. And so I don't think these two things are contradictory. And I think actually, in fact, if we're ever going to have a dirty break from the Democratic Party, which is to say that you use the Democratic ballot line, uh, but in the direction not towards building the Democratic Party, but actually building up the political and organizational forces that could have 
uh, culminate in a workers' party. If you're going to do that, it does make sense to, as soon as possible, start running people, some people independently, too, so you have some sort of exit strategy. Because the danger is that you just stay incessantly within the Democratic Party, because on, on a structural level, it's easier. You don't have to go through all these hoops. Uh, you're less likely to be accused of being spoilers. So the strategy then of how we relate to Bernie Sanders, but also Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, is how do we um, use these electoral um, vehicles and these campaigns, and then when they're elected, first and foremost, to build independent working class organizations and to promote socialist politics in general. Because if we're ever going to get to a workers' party, it's going to be, I think, down the road. It's not something, you know, I don't think we're talking like a half year to a year framework, although any, anything could happen. You know, imagine if, if Bernie gets elected, who knows what's going to happen, right? All sorts of crazy things could happen. But generally speaking, the level of class organization and class consciousness in the United States um, is just too low to have a mass workers party yet. And so the exciting thing about what we're seeing is class politics and socialist politics is back on the table to a significant extent, although not exclusively, because you have people like Bernie and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez every day, all day, basically railing against the billionaires and are able to do that on a national platform. And so our task has to be, how do we give an organized political expression to that on the ground by building up independent organizations like DSA, like Labor for Bernie, like the unions. And if we're able then to um, build up our forces, that's going to be the precondition to be able to really heighten and continue to heighten the contradictions with the Democratic Party that you're already seeing right now, in which the apparatus of the Democrats are more you know, inclined to have really raised uh, to the ground people like Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Cortez um, to impose all sorts of, um, you know, attacks on them uh, than they are in defeating the right. I think that they would rather have Trump get elected than have Bernie get elected, you know, as far as the Democratic Party establishment. For us to be able to win that is going to require building up our forces, building more strikes and disruptions, because I don't think you're going to be able to do this on a purely electoral way. And making it so you have a socialist movement, which right now has 60,000 members, I think realistically, you're going to have to have DSA or a socialist movement generally of hundreds of thousands of members that has a real base in the workers movement. And if we have that, then at that point, you can start talking seriously and not just sort of rhetorically about building a workers party that is completely independent of the Democrats. And we are going to need that eventually, because otherwise we're going to get sucked back into politics as usual. Uh, the timeline is very hard to imagine. But at this point, it seems to me that that's the only real plausible way towards uh, building independent working class politics in the United States. So thank you for joining us, Eric. This has been a great discussion. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was really fun. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. Feel free to get in touch with us by emailing podcast at socialistproject.ca. If you'd like to support us, please go to patreon.com slash oatsforbreakfast. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye, everyone.